Alaska Science Pod is a production of UAF's Geophysical Institute, for whom Ned Rizal has been writing science stories since 1994, when Bill Clinton was president and Justin Bieber was born. One of my favorite Alaska writers and people died in 2020. Her name is Sherry Simpson, and she was a Juno girl who moved to Fairbanks and worked for the Daily News Miner, and that's where I met her. I was like writing obituaries and wedding announcements, and she was a features editor, and she wrote essays for the News Miner's Sunday edition, and she would also write them for the Anchorage Daily News and magazines and literary anthologies. She really captured this place in words like few will ever be able to. One of my favorites of hers is an essay she did on ravens. It's called Telling Raven Stories, and it's in her book, The Way Winter Comes, which should be required reading for anyone who wants to learn about Alaska. So with permission from her husband, Scott Kiefer, who lives in New Mexico, which is where Sherry died in 2020, here is Telling Raven Stories, and it's read by a friend of mine, Lee Zernheld, who I used to work with at the Geophysical Institute. Uh, Lee is a nurse now, and I've always liked her voice, so she was happy to read this because she liked Sherry's stuff too. So here is Telling Raven Stories. On winter mornings, just as the sun's uncertain light slips across the Tanana Flats, ravens fly over my log cabin on their daily commute to town. Perhaps, like me, they would prefer to remain here in the hills above Fairbanks, where temperatures are usually 10 or 20 degrees warmer. But town is where the day's work lies, where ravens and people earn their daily victuals. Dozens of the birds crest the ridges alone, in pairs, strung out in groups that punctuate the sky like ellipses. They sail over slopes covered with spare aspen and birch trees and descend on the city wedged between the frozen Tanana and Chena rivers. Across other ridges, from other directions, hundreds of ravens are flying through the thin light to pick at the carcass of civilization. When daylight eases from the sky several hours later, the ravens return the same way they came, like arrows loose toward the twilight gathering at the northern edge of the world. In most Alaska Native cultures, Raven is known as the trickster who stole the box of daylight and returned sun and moon to the sky. This is how it seems to me, too, as the ravens appear with dawn and depart at dusk. Long after the sandhill cranes and Canada geese have rounded themselves up and departed in great honking, wheezing gusts, after fair-weather songbirds have sneaked away, the ravens remain. They are not interior Alaska's only year-round birds, but they are the most conspicuous. There's something about the swagger, the confident wedge of a tail, the cocked head and the sidelong glance that draws attention. At 40 below and colder, when the rest of us are feeling pretty damn sorry for ourselves, the ravens are still out there on the mean streets, hunched atop light poles, poking through garbage bags, fluffing out feathers until they look like cranky old men in down parkas. Anybody who lasts through a Fairbanks winter develops some sort of kinship for a bird this stubborn, or tough, or misguided, all of these being descriptions that could apply to us, too. Technically, the raven is a migratory bird, and allegedly it is a deep thinker among avians, which leads to the inevitable question, what's a smart bird like you doing in a place like this? Until I moved to the small cabin on the ridge, 
I had somehow missed the most intriguing and mysterious thing about ravens, their daily passage from darkness into daylight and back again. The raven reenacts the physical and metaphorical journey every northerner makes from fall into spring. Winter is literally a turning away from the light, a tilt of the globe that spins us into the spacious territory of night. The night offers its own solace, the hard, familiar stars, the oceanic incandescence of the aurora borealis. But we measure our pilgrimage through winter in increments of sun, minutes of light lost or gained, the shifting balance between day and night. This much is known. At twilight, the ravens are bound for roosts far beyond the city, where they settle companionably among the branches of spruce trees for the night. Think of them out there, scraps of living night rustling and shifting under a sky less black than they are. Most of what we know about ravens belongs not to science, but to folklore, myth, anecdote. Raven is an old comrade, a constant shadow on the edge of history. Tease apart our own stories, and there he is, eating dead warriors, announcing rain, warning sinners, inspiring poets. The Norse god Odin relied on his two ravens, thought and memory, to circle the globe each day and return to fill his ears with secrets. Most Alaska native groups tell raven stories, but the Clinket Indians of southeast Alaska own the most complicated and richly detailed collection of related stories, known as the Raven Cycle. Even an abbreviated list of episodes in the Dana Athabaskan version includes Raven Makes Land, Raven Gets Fire, Raven Gets the Sun, Raven Makes Women for Men, Raven Courts Willow Grouse Woman but Marries Goose Woman, Raven Becomes the Moon, Raven Brings Home His Own Guts, bursts with the soup of his own guts, and pretends to die. Probably it is too easy to see something of ourselves in the raven, to identify with the know-it-all vocabulary, a braininess unparalleled in the bird world, a complicated personality that makes it by turns creator, transformer, and trickster. But you'd think a bird credited with shaping the world and performing other grand acts would demonstrate the dignity that befits a creator. In fact, the raven delights in stripping others of whatever dignity they imagine they possess. On the coast, bald eagles are a favorite target of raven hooliganism. Eagles are no less scavengers than ravens, of course, but they do put on airs. More than once I've seen an eagle sitting in a tree and stoically bearing all sorts of insults and feints before finally flying away in search of peace, the jeers of ravens following. Not dignity, then, but knowingness. That's what the raven claims. I think of certain incidents. Trudging home along a back road after accidentally getting my car stuck in deep snow, I became the object of unflattering comment from a raven perched in the tippy-top of a spindly spruce. The bird repeated a hoarse, resonant croak with such fervor that I could see its breast heaving with each call. I hunched my shoulders against this abuse and kept trudging. For a long time, I heard it behind me. Once, as my husband and I snowshoed through a birch forest, a raven soared ahead of us and settled on a branch to watch our labored passage. The bird waited silently until we approached the tree. Then it toppled off the branch and plunged headfirst toward the ground, wings folded until the last second when it arced upward and away. Show off, my husband muttered. Science has not yet trumped mythology in explaining why ravens do the things they do, but it gives helpful clues. 
Rod King, a pilot and a biologist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, tells me that my house lies under a popular raven flyway between a roost and town. You can almost take a compass bearing to that route, he says. The ravens I see might be headed to Haystack Mountain, about 15 miles north, or to a roost near Nome Creek, 40 miles away. During the suspended animation that is December, the birds show up downtown between 10.30 and 11 in the morning and leave by 2.30 or so in the afternoon, when barely enough light remains to see. Since they all arrive and depart at roughly the same time, those that roost farthest away may take cues from the stars, King says. On snowy or windy days, their journey requires a little longer because they must fly closer to the ground to find their bearings. Ravens don't have instrument flight ratings, King notes. They've got to go visual. The reason they come to town is certainly no mystery. Fairbanks was founded less than a century ago, and as the human population has grown, the local population of ravens has easily adapted to take advantage of this windfall of refuse and handouts. Simply put, ravens have discovered that eating mugugai pan out of the Chinese restaurant's garbage is much easier than locating a moose carcass in the forest or chasing voles. Still wonderfully unclear is the reason that ravens make such long journeys each day. This practice seems counter to every common-sense notion about conserving energy during the cold winters. Only when the temperatures approach 45 or 50 below zero do the birds stay overnight in town, huddling together in warehouses and bus barns, and then only until the cold breaks. Why does a raven commute 80 miles every day when it could sleep in perfectly good spruce trees much closer to the all-you-can-eat buffet? The mystery of the raven, King intoned, half-joking. Then he thought of a better answer. So they can hide the sun and bring out the moon and the stars, just as I suspected. Most field biologists collect their data somewhere off in the legendary Alaska wilderness. King finds his subjects by driving his pickup behind fast food restaurants. To track the raven's movements, he relies on brightly colored wing tags and leg bands, radio transmitters, and a remarkable ability to drive more or less safely while peering out his windshield at the sky. Like the brash birds, he is high-spirited and talkative, with a pilot's confidence. He is also skilled at adopting the raven's sardonic point of view. Okay, guys, it's the blue truck, he says on behalf of the ravens when we approach. Keep your eyes on them. Or describing the raven's typical regard for the eagle. Let's bomb this skag. Here's one thing he can say from years of watching ravens pick through garbage. Ravens sure do like noodles. Of course, they will eat just about anything. One researcher, Ken Clarkson, analyzed pellets regurgitated by urban foragers in Fairbanks and discovered the most common elements were paper, bone, and glass, with smaller amounts of spruce needles, wood, plastic, foil, eggshells, pigeon bones, cooked chicken bones, mammal bones, and some fragments of fur. Most of these items come from common trash. Though, why ravens ingest spruce needles remains an enigma, Clarkson wrote. It's worth noting that Raven stole daylight by turning himself into a spruce needle that was swallowed by a fair maiden who then became pregnant with Raven himself. A university student who offered five food choices to ravens congregating at the dump discovered they preferred, in this order, French fries, chicken McNuggets, bread, lettuce, and balls of paper. Ravens eat stolen dog food and grain swiped from local farms, too. A few years ago, 
more than 800 ravens gathered for several days at a Fairbanks farm where the cattle weren't digesting grain properly, forming one of the largest roosts ever recorded anywhere. This is not to say that ravens prefer garbage to game. Now that the automobile has arrived in Alaska, ravens appreciate roadkill too. In the myths, ravens are always fooling other animals into catching fish, killing caribou, and generally doing the dirty work, and it seems that people are just as gullible. Last fall, I saw a cyclone of ravens swirling around a moose carcass by the roadside. Surely the moose had not been dead more than a day or so, but already the birds had hollowed out the cavern of its ribs. Trappers often watch ravens to see if the birds have found wolf kills where traps can be set. Many people insist that ravens also lead hunters and wolves to living moose and caribou so they can feast once the prey is slain. Once I saw a cow moose look up at the feathery swish of a raven flying overhead, and she kept watching until the bird disappeared. It's not my place to ascribe motives, but you have to wonder why the earthbound moose would pay such close attention to the all-seeing raven. On the January day we went cruising for ravens, King started at the movie theater, headed behind the doctor's clinic, and made the rounds of the eateries. Wendy's, Mongolian Barbecue, Asawan, Food Factory. A few owners had wised up and closed the lids on their trash bins. Sheesh, people are getting pretty stingy, King said, shaking his head. Between us is a, quote, net gun a shotgun modified to launch a six-foot square of modified gill net with a blank 308 shell. Netting a raven is not so easy, though. In King's first years of capturing ravens to tag them, a few missed shots of the dump were enough to teach the witnessing birds to stay clear of his truck. He had to switch vehicles before he could net more of them. Now the moment the ravens realize someone is watching them, they become wary. So when King spied a likely-looking group perched on a snow berm and slowed, the birds leapt into the air before he fired the gun out the window. Blam! Smoke hung in the still air. The net tangled around a lagging raven and dropped it harmlessly onto the snowy ground, where the birds struggled and squawked. The others wheeled overhead. Okay, they've got one of our brothers, King said, speaking for the birds. King pulled on thick leather gloves before he slipped his hand under the net to grab the birds' legs. Here was something few ravens experience, the grasp of a human hand. The raven reached back with its ebony beak, grabbed a gloved finger, and twisted fervently. King held the bird up into the clear winter light. The nictitating membrane flashed bluish-white across its black eyes. It opened its beak soundlessly, and we saw the sliver of a mottled pink and blue tongue. A sheen of green, blue, and brown glazed its feathers. King placed the raven in a small dog kennel, and the bird scooted to the rear, talons clicking against the plastic. Its black eyes glistened through the slats, but it made little noise beyond a gargled walk or two. King took the bird back to his office basement to perform various research ministrations. Raven toes. I'm sure they've been places I don't want to know, he grunted as he clamped a blue band around its leg. He bound a yellow flap of numbered vinyl around its wing with pop rivets, making it the 50th bird he had marked. I helped by pressing the bird firmly against the table as King attached to its back a mouse-sized radio transmitter with a curving tail of antenna. He used ribbon to form a harness and dental floss to affix the radio transmitter to the feathers. Eventually, the fibers supporting the makeshift backpack decay, allowing it to drop. 
But until then, King and his colleagues can track the bird to discover where it roams in town and where it sleeps at night. The raven's leathery talons clenched, searching for a grip, and I edged my arms away from their reach. These talons are a remarkable tool, and not just because they have the power to shred flesh. The raven's leathery talons clenched, searching for a grip, and I edged my arms away from their reach. These talons are a remarkable tool, and not just because they have the power to shred flesh. Ravens can sit on metal light poles or garbage bins at 40 below without freezing their feet solid because of a sophisticated heat exchange system known as a reta mirabila, or miraculous net, of veins and arteries. Every creature that survives winter here is caught in some miraculous net of adaptations. Ravens depend on nearly constant shivering, controlled hypothermia at night, and a metabolism that operates on perpetual overdrive. They endure. This raven was not happy. It panted with beak parted, crooking its head to stare at me with one harsh eye. Flexing its wings powerfully beneath my grasp, once in a while it gripped my gloved finger and yanked hard. It hurt, but King said it makes the bird feel better to have something to attack. I swore a little to myself, but the raven did not call out. Glimpsing my reflection in the raven's fierce and glistening eye, I began to feel a little uneasy. No one wants to get on raven's bad side. He did create mosquitoes, after all. Sometimes, King said, he goes outside after tagging a bird and finds ravens lurking, or so it seems. Sure enough, when we carried the indignant bird out in the dog kennel, a raven waiting in a nearby tree took flight overhead, uttering a derisive cry I didn't need a glossary to translate. King released the bird near where we caught it. He set it down in the parking lot and backed away, and after a moment it flapped off, the wing tag a brilliant herald against its blackness. The raven landed on a snow berm and sat a while, regaining its composure. After it gets over the initial shock of all this stuff, it'll think, Okay, now where was I? King said. I wondered if the yellow patch and the oddity of the radio backpack would somehow ostracize it among its fellows. The tags redeem these individuals from the natural anonymity of ravens, which bear no distinguishing plumage to say whether they are male or female, young or old, breeders or non-breeders. You must look at the gullet of a raven for the pink flesh that says it's younger. You must perform surgery to tell the sexes apart. They are all fractals of raven, the creator. Only with the tags can something be known of a raven's travels through these parts. Most paired ravens, which are thought to mate for life, spend the summer outside of town nesting, raising their young, and enjoying life in the countryside. Young, aimless ravens are the ones who linger about causing trouble or, conversely, make long road trips. Number 24 was a rover. King tagged this young bird in April 1994, and over the next year people spotted it down the Alaska Highway in the communities of Delta Junction and Toke, then up the Taylor Highway in the village of Eagle, and finally over in Dawson City in the Yukon more than 500 miles east of Fairbanks. Two other tagged ravens headed north, one appearing half the state away at Prudhoe Bay on the edge of the Arctic Ocean. An Anchorage bird once turned up nearly 400 miles away in a grocery store parking lot in Fairbanks. King theorizes that these loners followed the limited road system on the lookout for roadkill, or simply on the lookout. No one can make ravens go where they don't want to. 
the Russians experimented with transplanting ravens from Sitka and Unalaska to the lonely Pribilof Islands, floating out toward the edge of nowhere in the Bering Sea. The Russians hoped the birds would clean up garbage and offal, but the ravens apparently did not care for the Pribilofs and soon flew away, presumably for the mainland or the Aleutian Islands. The Aleuts said the ravens were too old for transplanting. Try raising young ones, they suggested. A few winters ago, when ravens roosted in a pair of Fairbanks warehouses during a short cold spell, the manager tried the Noriego-Waco approach to coaxing reluctant occupants from buildings. He turned on bright lights and played loud music through the night. Didn't bother the ravens any. Ravens are adept at messing with people's stuff and with their minds. Any visitation of ravens is vaguely alarming, so it's not surprising that the Juno newspaper reported an unusual swarm at the turn of the century. A flock of several hundred ravens winged over town one summer day and descended upon buildings, trees, and fences. A second flock followed, and then a third, so many that the birds repeatedly dropped out of bent trees and clusters and fluttered up again, searching for a perch, quote, until every available space became a rustling, moving, creaking mass of black, end quote. After a short rest, they took flight again, a black cloud vanishing in the distance. In the winter of 1929, when other food was scarce, ravens began killing sheep in the Aleutians. The Aleutian Island Livestock Company marked its sheep with a daub of red paint that apparently attracted ravens. Landing on the backs of the unfortunate sheep, the ravens would shift from pecking at the red spot to pecking out the eyes until the weakened animals fell. Switching to black paint seemed to help a little. Modern shenanigans are less predatory, but often more puzzling. Ravens in one Alaska town became obsessed with stripping the rubber off windshield wipers. No one knows why. When ravens inexplicably began poking holes in the covering on a giant satellite dish at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, technicians tried jiggling the dish mechanically to shake them off. When that failed, they sent out a, quote, ravenator, armed with a firecracker gun to scare them away. A friend describes watching a raven perched on the edge of a radar dish shout various calls into the parabola and then listen appreciatively to its own echo. A raven living in a cage at the Alaska Zoo in Anchorage pushed its food through the bars to wild ravens that gathered nearby. Again, the common refrain, no one knows why. One reason people favor ravens is because of their unusually large vocabulary. Ravens are the largest of the passerines or perching songbirds, but their eloquence usually emerges in syllables, not notes. A Fairbanks researcher identified more than 30 distinct calls he described with such words as kukwik, kiku, kokok, kowokokok, and so on. Others have devised their own syllabaries to describe raven calls, kaulup, kau, kuukuk, kra, and so on. But even renowned raven researcher Bernd Heinrich admits being unable to match those various dialects to each other. He sticks with quark, yell, trill, and knocking to describe important behavior. I grew up with raven voices in my head, but I always thought of these calls as the sound like water dropping or the sound like I'm being laughed at. To my inexpert ears, the calls I hear ravens make in Fairbanks seem different from the sounds ravens make in southeast Alaska. No matter. What unnerves me in a raven is not fluency, but silence.
the silence of a bird that has fixed you with a knowing gaze and is thinking things it chooses not to say. And so we tell our raven stories. Last winter, I tried to be more watchful like a raven. I saw a score of the birds plunging into updrafts, roiling off the edge of a building and then tumbling out again over and over. What else would you call this foolishness but play? I listened carefully to the sonorous caws echoing through the birch forest, or were they kawas? When courting season arrived in February, the birds abandoned purposeful flight for barrel rolls, aerial filigrees, and high-speed chases, and I laughed to see it all. Last fall, a white raven showed up in town. Even the ladies in the salon where I get haircuts were talking about it. And now I'm driving around like Rod King, with my head craned up near the windshield, hoping to see such a remarkable thing. Nature does not exist to teach us lessons. Nevertheless, by watching ravens, I've learned something about how to survive winter with spirit intact. There are worse things than to be fixed in the eye of a raven. Late one afternoon, as I walked with my dogs along a snowy trail, a raven swept overhead bound for its roost. The swoosh of wings eddied in the still air as the bird looped around for a closer look. The failing light of the sun gilded its breast. Twice more the raven circled us and then flew on, darkness falling from its wings. The Alaska Science Pod is a production of UAF's Geophysical Institute, where scientists study everything from the center of the Earth to the center of the sun and beyond. If you enjoyed listening to this interview, stay tuned for the next episode that releases every first Tuesday of the month. Or, if you want to read some of Ned's articles, go to the Alaska Science Forum at gi.alaska.edu forward slash Alaska Science Forum.